0: In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I move beyond the petty politics of the day. I'm going to answer a question much more important. The question is this, is God knowable? Can we know who God is? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. This is the last show of the week. Now, some of you listening are saying, wait a second, this is Wednesday. This is only the third installment of the Rebellion for the week. Why is it the last show? Well, it's obvious. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving, and we're taking that day off, and then Friday, likewise, we're taking a bit of a Thanksgiving break. So, we only have three installments this week, and this is Wednesday's show, obviously. It'll air, uh, as it is right now, on KOKL Radio, and then this afternoon, I will upload it to the podcast. So with that said, I'd like to wrap up the week with something, uh, how should I say it, more positive, uplifting, more important in many ways than the daily political squabble that we find ourselves in. Now, I don't, impo- I don't apologize for engaging in political critique. In fact, I think it's my obligation to do so. I think it's all of our obligations to engage in the market square of ideas, and clearly politics is part and parcel of that market square. So I think it's the Christian's responsibility. I think it is your and my responsibility to engage confidently and courageously in the debate of the day. Um, the St. Peter even tells us, be prepared to give a defense for the faith that lies within. Well, you can't give that defense if you're constantly retreating. You have to engage the battle, so to speak. So don't take my comment as if I'm going to uh, focus on the positive today, as if I'm calling political engagement uh, morally negative. I just think sometimes... There's value in setting the negative news on the shelf for the moment and revisiting it tomorrow. And that's what I'm going to try to do in today's program. Set that stuff on the shelf, focus on something much more important, much more positive and uplifting, and uh, hopefully send you off on a Thanksgiving celebration with something to chew on here. So the topic for the day, I mentioned it in the introduction. Is God knowable? Can we as fallible human beings in our little tiny minds, our brains that have limited capacity, obviously, can we know God is an infinite, sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, knowable to the human being? Can we even know who God is or is God by definition unknowable? That's the topic for the day. So let's take a break. And let our sponsors give their good word. And when we get back, we'll answer that question, or at least I'll attempt to answer that question. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. And I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So the question is this, is God knowable? Now, I had somebody ask me that question recently after he watched a Facebook uh, post It was a YouTube video, and it was titled, Putting Faith in Its Place. Uh, This video is essentially a movie, um, a rebuttal to the Christian view of natural law and common sense and traditional morality and the knowability of God, because all of those things are grounded in what we would assume is God's knowable standards and knowable definitions of natural law, common sense, sense that's common, traditional morality values and virtues in other words we can know some things about a sovereign omnipotent uh, omniscient all-powerful creator of the universe because he has revealed himself to us through nature and through scripture so christians would argue and jews would argue that god is knowable at least in that limited sense This particular video argues to the contrary, and it uses the analogy of a closed cube, a sealed cube, to try to prove that we can know, excuse me, we cannot know what is inside something that's unknowable. In fact, you can't know by definition what's inside the cube, is this video's point. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple of my responses to my Facebook friend who asked me to respond to this video, Putting Faith in Its Place. The essential argument of this video is you can't know the unknowable. You can't know what's inside a closed cube. And they claim that that's analogous to God. He's a closed cube. You can't know him. Um, So... The question is basically this. Can we actually know anything about the existence of God? Uh, Is it impossible to argue the knowability of something that by definition can't be known? Now, you should see or you should already sense that there are a couple fallacies in this particular assumption. They're setting it up as if God is unknowable by definition. Now, is that true? Now, before I presume to go any further and answer the question, the basic question in play here, which I'll try to do in a second, I want to make sure that I recommend to all of you listening a couple of authors that can answer the question a lot better than I can, with a lot more wisdom and a lot more savvy and a lot more experience and a lot more brains than I have. C.S. Lewis would be one of those, Mere Christianity. Read it. Read it several times. Read his book, The Great Divorce, The Weight of Glory, The Abolition of Man. All three of those books are very important reads. I'll repeat what I just said. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Put it at the top of your list. Then read Great Divorce. I've talked about it before on this show. Read Weight of Glory. That's actually a lengthy presentation that he delivered at Oxford, a sermon, if you will. Um, Very important read of C.S. Lewis. And then read Abolition of Man. I could give you more books, but let's just stop there. These are classics, and you're going to find a lot more wisdom um, from an honest man who is several steps ahead of you or me in the journey of faith, Lewis was just the quintessential conversion story. He was a radical atheist, brilliant Oxford scholar, a very materialistic man. Uh, In fact, he believed in materialism. He didn't believe there was anything that you could prove other than the material things that you could taste, touch, and see. Uh, The empirical senses were the only things that you could know. Um, That's C.S. Lewis in his early days. And then He had this conversion. In fact, he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He did not want to convert to Christianity intellectually, but the hound of heaven caught him and wouldn't let him go. Uh, Kelly Monroe Kohlberg has another book that I think is very important for you to read. It's titled A Faith and Culture Devotional. In fact, in that book, Kelly Monroe Culberg has a chapter written by John Marks Reynolds. Excuse me, John Mark Reynolds, not John Marks. John Mark Reynolds. He's a professor at a Christian university out on the west coast. And in his essay Reynolds, uh, that's in this book by Kelly Monroe Culberg, again a faith and culture devotional, Reynolds titles the essay "Plato, Lover of Truth, Beauty, and the Good." And here's what Reynolds' basic argument is in his essay. Plato knew, Plato knew, now he wasn't a Christian, but Plato knew knew that the human heart yearns and hungers and wants and seeks and longs for truth and justice and rightness. And and, and these very desires, even the left, even the woke, I mean, they're all up in arms about injustices, right? About uh, systemic injustice, that is their main mantra. Well, even the left are, w- would admit that they've got this hunger, this desire for justice, for rightness. And Reynolds argues that the very desire in and of itself is evidence of the existence of something, something immutable, unchangeable, that's right. And Plato called it love. In other words, if you've got a hunger for something, that hunger demonstrates that there must be something out there that you're hungering for. Thirst was made for water, and hunger was made for food. So this desire for justice seems to imply that there is a just standard out there with a capital J that you're longing for, hungering for, you're seeking, you yearn for it, your heart wants that thing. Plato called it an all-encompassing love. And in his book, Symposium, there's a, uh, there's a, he argues this, that there has to be a greater truth than personal opinions and populist propaganda. Uh, here's a brief dialogue between Socrates and Plato. Okay, Socrates was Plato's mentor. So this is a dialogue between the two of them in Plato's book, Symposium. Now tell me about love, Socrates says, Is love the love of nothing or of something? And then Plato answered, Well, of something, of course. Surely it's of something. Do you get the point here? Socrates is challenging Plato. And he's saying, Well, you believe in love with a capital L. Is that love of nothing or love of something? And Plato says, Well, it's surely love of something so there has to be something out there as the object of love of the object of that desire of the object of justice of the object of this yearning and this hunger for truth it can't just be opinions so again the point of this exchange between between these two great philosophers is that the human being desires answers desires justice and longs for love for a bigger something for a greater good. And then Reynolds goes on in his essay. He says this deep longing for justice, beauty, and truth must have an end. Plato believed that there was more to the cosmos than empty desire and death. In other words, hunger implies that there's food. Thirst assumes that there's water. Questions are meaningless without the possibility of an answer. Love cannot exist without an ultimate object of its affection. Do you get that point? You wouldn't have these longings if there wasn't something out there to long for. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, if you find yourself longing for something that you can't get in this material world, it might be evidence that you were made for something beyond this world, beyond the material. In fact, that's one of the things that led him to conversion was that admission. So here's my problem with this video. Uh, this YouTube video titled Putting Faith in Its Place, which uses the closed cube as the argument that you can't know God. I, I look at it this way. It's a documentary, and it's well done, quite frankly. It's well produced, and the questions are good questions. But it highlights, it's like highlighting the existence of hunger to prove that there's no such thing as food, or or featuring a drought to prove that there's no such thing as water. Does that make sense? As Pascal told us, the vacuum at the center of every human soul bears the very image of the only thing that can fill the void. So this video asks the question, admits that the human heart, the human soul, the human psyche, the human being yearns for this answer. Can we know God? In fact, all of you listening to me right now, are interested in this conversation, whether you deny God or whether you embrace God, you're interested in this discussion. Now, I may be doing a poor job of answering your question, but you're interested in it. Why? Because the vacuum in the center of your soul bears the very image of the only thing that can fill the void. You don't prove that water doesn't exist by focusing on the drought. You don't prove that there's no such thing as food by ignoring the fact of hunger you don't do that in fact the two go hand in hand so this concept of the closed cube uh, as portrayed in this video and the way a lot of us look at it and that is God's unknowable because he's in this compartment that we can't we can't experience, we can't touch it, we can't see it, we can't taste it, we can't hear it, we can't experience it. It's non-experiential. It, it, it does remind us that we all see through a glass darkly. That's, that's scriptural. But the very desire to know what's in the box, in the cube, and to see more clearly proves not that the box is empty, But frankly, it proves the opposite, that something must be in the box as the object of our desire, or we wouldn't even care about anything I've said in the last 10 minutes. And that something must be the ultimate answer. Otherwise, why do we care? Why bother? If everything is relative, and if there's no such thing as a knowable, transcendent truth, then why do we spend any time trying to prove that there is no such thing? as anything that's transcendent and anything that's knowable. Your argument would have no basis because your argument wouldn't be testable. It couldn't be true. It would only be your opinion. Why contend for rightness, in other words, if your argument is, is that there's no standard of rightness to prove that you're right and I'm wrong? So the entire presentation of this empty box, of this closed cube, is built on the presupposition that the final answer is that there's no answer. Well, that is an answer, so it's self-refuting. It's a self-refuting claim if I've ever heard one. The bottom line is this. The unavoidable pretext for any argument is that something is right and something is wrong, is that someone has the right answer and someone has the wrong answer. So... The producer of this film, Putting Faith in Its Place, takes 10 minutes, ironically, to prove this point by essentially saying that he's right for condemning those who think they're right and that he knows that those who think that they can know God are wrong, that they can't know. But he knows that they can't know. So he's essentially arguing that he knows the answer to the unknowable answer. Uh, that makes no sense. Again, it's the nature of the progressive left. They're always sawing off the branch upon which they sit. You've heard me say that before. Now, again, I think the video that I'm talking about right now is well done. So if you Google it and find it out there, it is well done. and It's interesting. I think the writer or producer or whoever both, I think they're thoughtful, and obviously they're very bright. But at the end of the video, at the end of this question, at the end of this... Uh, Quandary. We're left with this. Which argument measures up? Which position comes closer to the mark? Which one, his or mine, or yours, is more right? I.e., which one's closer to the truth than the other? Right? That's the point. Otherwise, why produce this video and why try to make the argument? So in asking all of these questions that I just rattled off, you got to acknowledge A measuring rod outside of those things being measured, or you can do no measuring. Back to C.S. Lewis again, that I've quoted a 100 times over on this show. This video, this producer, this writer, this question, this closed cube argument presupposes a jury. Uh, So it's relevant to a lot of the political stuff we've been debating this last week because we had a jury acquit uh, Rittenhouse. So this video presupposes that there is a jury. It appeals to the existence of some sort of judge and jury, right? Because they're making an argument. They're saying listen to me. This argument is more valid than the opposite. So the point is obvious. There cannot be a contest without some rules of engagement. There can't be a game without a referee to make a final call. Otherwise, we're just play, we're we're engaging in chaos. There's no rhyme or reason to the game whether it be sports, whether it be music, or whether it be life. Um, it would make no sense to the participants, and it wouldn't even make any sense to the spectators. It would be as foolish as going to um, you know, pick your game, an OSU-OU game. If there isn't some sort of standard, some sort of judge, some referee and some rules, then it would be senseless. It would make no sense. The exercise would be a meaningless one. So here's my point. I don't want to disparage people that ask this question. And in fact, the guy asking the question in this closed cube presentation, he's doing a good job of trying to refute the objective, the immutable, the unchangeable, the absolute, the reality of God. Um, But in doing his video and producing this video, I would argue he's proven the exact opposite. He hasn't proven the unknowability or the fact that God doesn't exist, I would argue that he has proven that there must be an objective, immutable, unchangeable, absolute, real authority and standard. Otherwise, there's no way for him to argue that his presentation is a better one than I'm giving you right now. In other words, he's arguing. He has to be arguing that there has to be a logos, a word. Logos is is Latin for word. Jesus is the Logos. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the word made flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus defines himself as an alphabet, as the Logos. There has to be a Logos. There has to be an ultimate logic. And even the producer of this video, the people asking this question from the closed cube perspective, they have to assume that there's a law for there to be a lie. So if they're arguing that God is a lie, then they have to be arguing from the context that there is a law, a logos, a logic that proves the lie to be what it is. Again, you have to assume that there is righteousness or you can't be righteously indignant. You have to assume that you're right if you're going to try to prove me wrong. You have to believe in truth to claim that somebody else his beliefs are false. Are are you getting my point? The argument that God can't be known is a claim to know, to know something about God. So you're claiming God is knowable by claiming that he's unknowable. It's a, it's a worthless expense of breath to make that argument unless there are standards of rightness and knowability and wrongness and unknowability out there outside of yourself outside of the temporal human mind, yours or mine or this guy that produced this video, you've got to have a standard. Otherwise we can't engage in these conversations, these debates, and we can come to no conclusions as to who's right or wrong. Everything would just be epistemological and ontological nihilism, nothingism. We would live in a world of nothingism, of whateverism, where everything would implode upon itself. And any discussion of justice, of righteousness, of, um, economic redistribution, of socialism versus capitalism, uh, of communism versus free enterprise, of Christianity versus Nazi socialism and Nazi Germany and Hitler's Third Reich. Nothing would be meaningful. Uh, nothing would make any difference. It would all be self-refuting nonsense if there isn't any standard out there for us to use in having these discussions. Um my opponents, people that may disagree with me on this, they would have no energy or they wouldn't even have a desire to prove me wrong if you didn't believe that you could prove that you're right. And the fact that you think that is the best proof that God is God and you're not. Because the only standard of rightness, the only standard of righteousness, the only standard of justice, the only standard of love— the only standard of goodness and beauty of the logos, of the word, has to be something more enduring than the human opinion of politics or power or even the patantic arrogance of these scholars that make these arguments. So is God knowable? I would argue, yes, he's knowable completely and fully. no. No, to to argue that I know God completely and fully and I understand the mystery of the Trinity and I understand all the mysteries of creation and I understand all of the mystery of eternity versus a time-bound reality that human beings live in. That would be stupid. That would be silly. Of course I don't. But can I know God? Yes. How can I know God? It's through his revelation. St. Paul tells us, in his letter to the Romans, that the truth of God is written on every human heart. We know God, it's on our heart, because we know that we hunger for righteousness. We know that we hunger and yearn for goodness. We know that we think some things are beautiful and some things are ugly. And we argue today our special cause is justice, justice. Well, nobody would care about justice if there isn't some standard of what's just, if there is no judge to determine what ultimate justice really is. And that judge can't be political power because history tells us that that becomes a very poor measuring rod of righteousness, of goodness, of justice. In fact, it's actually an imposition of evil rather than than a, um, a protector of what's good and right and real. So, yes, you can know God. You know God through revelation, natural revelation, because the truth of God is written on every human heart. You see it in nature. You see it in creation. You see the logic and reason and the design of the things around you. Plato, not even a Christian, obviously, he understood that the hunger, the yearning of the human heart and soul proved that there must be something, some object of that affection. And that object was love with a capital L, Okay, It had to exist. Surely, love of something. It had to exist. It had to be attached to something bigger, something greater, something that was ultimately good with a capital G. So the deep longing for justice and beauty and truth must have an end. Plato understood this, and Pascal understood this, and St. Paul understood this. And that ultimate standard is revealed to us, not just through nature, but in the Word, the Word of God, the revelation of God. And ultimately, it's revealed to us by the Word made flesh and dwelling among us. If you want to know God, look to the incarnation of God himself, Jesus Christ. We're entering into the Advent season, and I can't think of a better way to do so than to Celebrate the fact that on Christmas Day, on Christmas morn, Jesus Christ was born in a manger. Emmanuel, and what does that name mean? God with us. We can know God through natural revelation, yes. We can know God through scripture, but ultimately, we know God because he became incarnate. He humbled himself and became obedient unto unto death. He was born in a manger, he died on a cross, and he rose from the grave. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is the knowable God. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend, and get prepared thereafter to celebrate the Advent season, to celebrate God incarnate, the Word made flesh, and dwelling among us. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.